0: Thank you so much. Good morning. Love for you now to take your Bibles. And we're going to be turning to the book of Habakkuk and picking up where we left off last week. And if you had the teacher who taught you grammar sitting by your side as we're looking at this passage today, she would probably be telling you that there is a change in the grammar that happened between what we were looking at last week and what we're looking at today. Because she would be elbowing you and saying, did you notice that prior to this study today, everything was in the third person? In other words, you were referring to your Lord as God, or even speaking of him as he. But now there is a change that takes place, beginning in verse 8, and all of a sudden, you are speaking of your God as you. Something got personal. Something starts connecting with the heart, the mind, the soul, and this dynamic you have with your God. And so what is happening now is that Habakkuk has been reviewing the past to prepare you and me for our future. But to prepare us for the future, he shifts now to the you because he wants to make absolutely certain that you and I are, just as what was found in chapter 2, verse 4, Righteous, declared righteous, for we were told the righteous shall live by his or by her faith. And so now, as we are connecting the past with the future, what's behind us and what's before us, check out verse 8 down through 15. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bull, calling on many arrows, and then adds this musical term: "Selah." You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you thrushed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And then again, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And what you are finding now, if you've got a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, is that poetically and yet prophetically, what he is doing is he's connecting you with both Genesis and Revelation in one fell swoop of what we see here this morning as we look to our Lord in prayer. And our Father, as we gaze into these words, we want to be able to look into you. The infinite, the eternal, the unchangeable one who gave His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place for our sins. And we see that the ultimate battle was won at the cross of Christ. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to look carefully at these verses. expressed poetically, and yet at the same time, there is a relationship here. They need to be connected personally with who we are and what we're about. So help us now to do that.
1: Warm these hearts.
0: Engage these minds and shape these wills. Come here again to see Jesus and and Him only. Praying pray these things again in Jesus' name. Amen. It was not what Richard Chilton had expected as he was trying to find just what happened to his uncle in the final days of his life during World War II. But it's a story that those of us that anticipate commemorating Veterans Day need to allow to resonate within our hearts. For you see, Chilton was on a mission to be able to determine just what exactly happened to his uncle I'd called about 200 men, and no one really seemed to be able to tell me much about him, Chilton said. And I was ready to give up, but I tried one more. I left a message with Garland Miro Connor, And a few days later, Chilton got a cryptic message on his answering machine. I knew your uncle, he said. I was with him the night he died. He died from small arms fire. More to follow, unquote. But that was the last that Chilton had heard from Connor, the news reports tell us. When he finally mailed a letter to him, Connor's wife, Pauline, wrote back to say that her husband had had a stroke and was no longer able to speak. Now, Chilton, who lives in Wisconsin, drove more than 500 miles to Connor's home in a desperate hope that a face-to-face meeting might yield some more information. It didn't. And as a dejected Chilton was walking out the door of the Connor home, Pauline suggested he look through her husband's records. Maybe there would be a clue about his uncle there, she said. She emerged from a back room with a box full of medals. Commendations, yellowed newspaper clips, faded photographs. Chilton found nothing on his uncle, but to his astonishment, he spent the next few hours digging through the box and discovered what he said, quote, the most decorated soldier I have ever heard of. I was blown away. I've never heard or seen of a man before who was able to receive four silver stars, four bronze stars, seven purple hearts, and the Distinguished Service Cross for his World War II heroism. But it was what he did on January 24th of 1945 that elevated his courage, to almost mythical status. For through the pictures, medals, and testimony of Connor's superior officers, including legendary Major General Lloyd Ramsey, the story of Connor's heroic actions more than 50 years earlier in France came back to life. Earlier that day, Connor had been badly wounded in the hip, sneaked away from the field hospital made his way to his unit's camp. His commanding officer was seeking a volunteer for a mission. Run 400 yards directly toward the enemy while unreeling telephone wire all the way to the trenches on the front line. From that point, the volunteer would be able to call in targeting coordinates from mortar fire. Connor grabbed the spool wire, took off amid intense enemy fire. He made it to the ditch where he stayed in contact with his unit for three hours in near zero degree weather as a ferocious onslaught of Nazi tanks and infantry bore down on him. He held off 600 Nazis and six tanks coming right at him, Chilton marveled. When they got too close, his commander told him to vacate, but instead he said, blanket my position which meant that Conner was calling for artillery strikes as he was being overrun, risking his life in order to draw friendly fire that would take out the enemy too. Circumstances conspired to thwart Chilton's initial effort to have Connor awarded the Medal of Honor, which 471 men received for their efforts of World War II, because his commander did not fill out the necessary paperwork an oversight he later apologized for. Records, which included testimony from fellow soldiers, were lost with millions of others in the 1973 fire at the National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis. But amazingly, most of all, Connor never told his story and cannot now because of his stroke. So Chilton is on a mission to this very moment of trying to secure for him the Medal of Honor. Even though the guidelines and the rules right now say that he is, at this point, beyond the point in which this can be considered. Yet Chilton continues to pursue this. And quoting Ramsey, the legendary Major General Lloyd Ramsey, he had said during those days, I just sent one of my officers home. He wrote to a colleague in Kentucky in 1945 when Connor was discharged I am really proud of Lieutenant Connor. He probably will call you, and if he does, he may not sound like a soldier. He'll sound like a good old country boy. But to my way of seeing, he's one of the outstanding soldiers of this war, if not The outstanding. What we are looking at this morning is a military movement. A military movement that takes past, present, and future all into context and connects dots for you and me. In essence, describes our God, this personal God, as the divine warrior the one who ultimately should be receiving the Medal of Honor. And beginning, you see, in verse 8 down through verse 15, we find once again that this writer, Habakkuk, is offering what you and I described last week as a theophany, which means simply an appearance of God. Or, as he chronicled throughout the course of biblical history, various appearances of God. Theophanies. These were trying times. They were trying times for the people of Judah, as Habakkuk wrote, because the encroaching armies of the Babylonians, also known as the Chaldeans, were, were getting closer and closer and closer to Judah, and in particular, Jerusalem, most of all. When you and I find ourselves in trying times, we need to be able to draw some perspective that's found here in these verses. So this morning, if life seems heavy... If you feel like you're in the battle and life seems overwhelming, what we want to do now is to seize two significant opportunities that you and I will find here in these verses to equip you and to equip me to be able to manage the days well for God and for his glory. The first one flows out of verse 8 through 11. The number one trying times are opportunities for you and me. Opportunities for reviewing the past as we examine the appearances of God. To understand your present, you've got to understand your past. To understand your God, you've also got to be able to understand what he's done in the past. And now, poetically and historically, what Habakkuk does for you and for me is that he gazes into the past. And in verse eight, poses questions because this book is filled with questions. If you're a parent, you find strategic ways to be able to pose questions to draw people out and to draw your family into who God is and what God's all about. And here's Habakkuk now as he is pulling out the questions: Was your wrath against the rivers, O oh Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? Now what's he doing? Creatively, what he is doing at this point is that he is utilizing the idea of waters and showing God's relationship to both the river as well as the sea. And so now when you and I are teaching, we're teaching God's word maybe to our family, to our friends, to our loved ones, We look back and we begin to ask, and what was God doing with the rivers of old? And what lessons can we be drawing from even right now? And this was a question, of course, that Joshua wanted to prompt within the mindset of the next generation as they're standing at the Jordan River and they see these 12 stones that are mounted high. Because in Joshua chapter 4, verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And now what has Joshua done? Just what in a subsequent era Habakkuk would do. He is connecting dots, and now he's showing that the God of the Jordan was also the God of the Red Sea, and the same God who has the power to be able to part the waters so that people could cross the Jordan River is the God who could also part the waters for people to be able to cross the Red Sea. And now Habakkuk is reflecting upon that during his trying times as the Babylonian forces are moving closer and closer and closer. You're going through trying times. Way down your heart? Now what you need to do at that point then is to pause and begin to look back over what God has done in your past, the times in which he revealed his power to you in those times when life seemed utterly hopeless and your heart was filled with despair. And Habakkuk now has to do this for his heart to remedy his own soul. And so he looks back and he says, Ah, with regard to those rivers, why was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? But then it was the rivers that God used to make a statement to the Israelites that he is the God who is sovereign. And he can guide you across the river. But then he goes there to say, Oh, your indignation against the sea. And, of course, he's thinking about that moment when Moses would be able to stand there and say to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, not which you will work for him today. That's grace. And now what Habakkuk is doing is that he's making connection. And what you and I need to do is to make connections of all the various significant events in our lives where we've seen the sovereign God intervene when life seems so overwhelmingly challenging at this very moment. And now Habakkuk is realizing that God was the God sovereign over the sea and guiding the Israelites through it when, the Pharaoh, when Pharaoh and his Egyptian forces seemed to be threatening their very existence. And he thinks about how God guided the Israelites through the Jordan River so that they might be able to enter into the promised land. He connects us, and so should you, and so should I. As so we think about the way in which God works within our own lives. In verse 8, he seizes the imagery of the water here to show who God is and how God works. There's a biography of the ruler of Russia of a prior era, Peter the Great. And he wanted to launch a Russian Navy at the Archangel of the White Sea. Get this. He promoted three of his comrades to high office, appointing them as admiral, vice admiral, and rear admiral, respectively. The thing is, the first two had never been on a boat. The last, Patrick Gordon, a Scotsman in Peter's service, well, he had nautical experience. He's simply been a passenger on ships crossing the English Channel a few times in his life. Now, God's got some experience with waters. He's sovereign over them. He doesn't merely pass through them. He reigns over them. Now, what you've got to do is look at the turbulent waters of your life. And when it seems as though this is an impassable moment, look back over what God has done, because that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing for his own mind, heart, and soul. And he's allowing the past to inform him with regard to the faith he needs in the present. Because you remember, God had informed Habakkuk these words in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Are you deepening your faith in what God has already done and preparing your heart for what God is about to do? Because he goes on in verse 8 to say, when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, he poses it still as a question because he wants, he wants to continuously grapple with this God who is the divine warrior. And as he looks at the Babylonians coming in the direction of Judah at this point, what he needs is the divine warrior one more time to break in, intervene. But he's got to refresh himself as to what God has done in the past in order to be able to handle what he himself is experiencing in the present. Are you doing that? He continues on with his imagery now as he moves into verse 9. You strip the sheath from your bow, he sees. In other words, it's as if God now, with his weaponry of the bow and the arrow, is making his bow ready, calling for many arrows, and then once again use NIC that musical to him. And for the musicians in our congregation, you know that there is a rest so often that appears within a measure. And so now in the music of your life, what you've got to do is to seize that rest. Don't run through it. It's meant for you now to catch your breath and pause and reflect upon what has already taken place in your life and what has already taken place in all of time. Are you finding rest in the midst of your turmoil? Because that's exactly what Moses did for the Israelites and the music of their lives. Because again, as we read from that passage in Exodus chapter 15, 14, Fear not.
1: Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. Are you willing to stand firm, calm your spirit,
0: process the events of life where God has been at work as you're connecting now your present to your future? Have you found the period of rest in the measure of your musical composition? That's your Selah. But now once you say, Lord, he continues on here and said, you split the earth with rivers. And it's almost as if, poetically, he is now beginning to connect not only what has taken place historically, but also speaking of what will take place prophetically. Because in Revelation chapter 16, verse 3, and again in verse 4, here you find your God at work. As in verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl, where? Into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel, angel poured out his bowl onto the rivers. Now he is again used in Revelation, rivers and sea. And they became blood. And now he's hearkening back to what happened in the days of Moses and the whole matter of the Red Sea, guiding us through Joshua's experience with the Jordan River. And he's saying what has taken place historically is also what we need to be able to be prepared for uh, prophetically. And so now you and I begin to connect these dots as we look past, present, and future. and We see something cosmic is being expressed at this very point. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. There's something bigger than even what happened with Moses on Mount Sinai here you and I tend to find that mountains look like immovable objects. And the raging waters swept on the ever-movable current. And the immovable and the ever-movable seem to be contrasted here, and there's this sense of turbulence in life. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Trying times. And what God wants to do at this point is allow for you to experience what verse 10 describes. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. It's almost as if you've dug deep and you've found the voice that you need to be able to express the faith that's needed even in your trying times. When our three children were small, they're all adults now, we went to Williamsburg, and maybe you've gone there before too, and close friends, uh, Tom and Gene were with us, and their children. Tom is a descendant of various historic political leaders in America, and also a descendant of Jonathan Edwards, the great, great pastor-theologian. And so Tom and I were sitting down at a wedding a few years back, and he said, Gary, do you remember when?" And he took us back to that point in time in Williamsburg where both families had been going from one setting to another, drinking in the history, walked into this particular building where there was this tour guide, guiding a group of about 40 people. We joined them. And she was explaining how government procedures were handled at that particular point in time. And then she said, at the end of the governmental session, they would bow in a word of prayer. Now, is there anybody here that would like to lead us in prayer? And before I could bat my eye, Tom's pointing at me and said, he will. And so I gave him the typical Highlander squint of the eye and I looked, as I looked at him. And I prayed. And at the end of the prayer, I prayed, And in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tom reminded me there were some astonished looks on faces. There were smiling looks on faces. There were some frowns on faces. But it was what the tour guide said next that caught my attention.
1: And that's the way it was. And what I want to say
0: is, and that's the way it is. But we leave so much of the greatness in the past that in our faith, or lack thereof so many times we should say, we don't transfer it into the great aspects of what God can do is doing in the present. What we need to be able to do is to transfer that, that knowledge we have of what God did into the present and say, and this is what God is doing now in the present when everything seems immovable or in other cases, everything seems to be changing so rapidly that I don't know what to do next. And we seize the moment and realize He's the sovereign God over both the mountain as well as the rivers. He doesn't abandon us. He guides and directs us. And so in verse 11 at this point then, he moves from the way it was to the way it is. Verse 11, he retrieves a story out of Joshua chapter 10, doesn't he? He speaks poetically of what took place historically. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. That's Joshua chapter 10. Great story, another military aspect as we approach Veterans Day. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of glittering spear, he writes. And now you and I look back at the way in which God is sovereignly over the, in control of all aspects of life, including your job, including your health, including that child that you're burdened for, including very issues of the hour that you feel so overwhelming with by this point in time? Are you reviewing the past and where God was then? And are you able to say, not merely, and that's the way it was, but also, and this is the way it is? You see, trying times are opportunities for you and for me for reviewing the past as we examine the appearances of God. But secondly, trying times are opportunities for you and me for reviewing the future as we await the anointed of God. In verse 12, he uses a military expression. And so the veterans in our services this morning, they see this and they know the militaristic aspect of this prayer. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. And we look at that word march, and we know that the history teachers that are found in all these services are beginning to think about what took place during the Civil War. It seemed as though Abraham Lincoln was not going to get reelected. General McClellan was the peace candidate. Things were going wrong, so it seemed, but then there was this general, General Sherman. And he marched a big army, the U.S. Army of the West, from Tennessee to Georgia to the Carolinas. And the Army's march is one of the most famous in military history. Sherman believed in the Union, not the breaking up thereof. His soldiers called him Uncle Billy. And Uncle Billy was about to squeeze the South like an anaconda snake and like Grant at Vicksburg. Sherman broke the rules he had learned when he was a cadet at West Point. When he marched east, he left his supply lines. An army's never supposed to do that. Sherman gambled that he could find enough food in the agriculturally rich south. He was right, but it wasn't easy. He cut a path 40 miles wide. Nothing much was left on the path but empty fields, burned barns, homes. And while it seemed ruthless... Now historians say, Sherman may have done it right. He probably shortened the war. He would go on to say this. Yes, it was ruthless, but there was mercy in the end. And you think about that historically. So there was Lincoln, and he was wondering just where is Sherman? They were not getting any reports back. I'm going to be beaten badly unless some great change takes place. But then Sherman won an astonishing victory. He led his soldiers on what's now known as the Great March and captured the city of Atlanta. In verse 12 now, he is using the past tense to describe a future matter. You marched through the earth in fury. And lo and behold, what we see here is that he is treating the future almost historically, speaking of that great day known as the Day of Armageddon. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations. It's plural at this point, in anger. And now he wants you and me to be able to thread past, present, and future in the way in which we pray before God. And as he does so, I want you to spot Jesus in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, he said. Look what comes
1: next. For the salvation
0: of your anointed. Anointed. In the Old Testament, the word anointed is literally Messiah. In your New Testament, the word for anointed is Christ. What he is now doing for you and me, poetically, is connecting past, present, and future. So now, in those trying times, you do both review as well as preview. You review what God has done. You preview what God will do. And As Habakkuk would have done, he would have perhaps drawn out something of Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us so what you and I are doing now, as we are prayerfully coming before God in our trying times, <coughs> we see two significant opportunities. These trying times are times for us to do a review. These trying times are opportunities for us to do a preview. We look very carefully at the anointed one. We consider the Messiah's advance, speaking of the end days. You went out for the salvation of your people. And here we find, it's even before 605 B.C., we don't even have Christ's first coming yet, and he's already projecting head to the second coming. Starting. But you see, God can do that because he stands outside of time and sees the past, the present, and the future on the present tense. And this is what the Scriptures allow for you and for me to do. And then adds these words at the end of verse 13. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And now what Habakkuk is doing poetically and yet historically, connecting past, present, and future, is he's drawing us back to that great promise of Genesis 3, verse 15 in the Garden of Eden, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And now we have it. Because what God now is doing at this point is that he's allowing you and me to be able to see the Messiah's advancement and linking the first coming to the second coming, and see the Messiah's accomplishment in verses 14 and 15. Because he goes on then to say in verse 14, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters at this point. And he begins to tie together everything that Habakkuk is wrestling with about why things are going the way they're going. Because, you see, he began this book with questions. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? You ever been there? That's the wait. And in verse 3 of chapter 1, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? And there's the why. And now you're wrestling with your why questions in the midst of your wait question. And in chapter 2, verse 3, God had answered in this way, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens. It's the picture of a runner, a marathoner, as he's reaching the finish line. It hastens to the end. He's gasping for air. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And then he gets to the heart of the matter, the matter of the heart. Behold, his soul, the unbeliever, is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous, there's the contrast. The one declared righteous shall live by his faith. And what God has done at this point is that he has connected what you and I might describe here as God's appointment with God's anointment. How long, God, are we going to have to wait? God has an appointed time. But along with that appointed time is this anointed Savior. And now he brings it all together. And what we find here is Habakkuk connecting past, present, and future. And he's seeing how God intervenes past, present, and future. And so it's not left, in, and that's the way it was. But you look at your trying times, and you say, and that's the way it is, because he's still in charge. He's still in control, and he wants you to review, and he wants you to preview. Pull all this together with both the appointed and the anointed, and see how it relates to your life and to mine. And so here we have it. We've got this man who has stumbled upon something that he can't believe. He emerges from a back room. He's got medals, commendations, yellow newspaper clippings, faded photographs. And he's looking at a man who has a stroke and can't even speak for himself. And lo and behold, what he sees here are four silver stars, four bronze stars, seven purple hearts, the distinguished service cross for his World War II heroism, recounts for himself the heroic ventures of what took place in France at that time, where even the legendary Major General Ramsey would speak up with regard to this man. He's one of the outstanding soldiers of this war, if not the outstanding. And then you bring it home and you say, you know, I'm in a battle right now. Maybe it's not World War II, but for me these are trying times. I'm going to have to pause and find the selah of life. And do a review and a preview and realize that my sovereign God deserves the medal of honor when he sent Jesus to die for my sins. You collect your thoughts. Life is not a playground. Life is a battleground. And we need to step forward by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. So, Father, for the veterans of this day that we are honoring in each of the services this morning, we respect what they've done. We give thanks to you
1: for who they are.
0: What we see in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a veteran who went to the cross in his first coming to die in our place for our sins. We've got to make absolutely certain we've put our faith and trust in his finished work. But in our review, we've also got to establish the preview that he's coming back and he's going to put together those things that are still needing to be addressed. And so, Father, what we need to do likewise in our personal lives is to look back over what you've done, how you've intervened, because it's not merely the way it was the way it is and the way it will be when it's all brought together for your glory. For that person today facing trying times, minister, now I pray to that heart.
1: In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you.